Well, good morning. Uh, I am Tim Drum, and I am, as, uh, as was said, the pastor of student ministries at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mount Vernon, Washington, and that is, it's Washington State, is way up north, so we're actually closer to Canada than we are to Seattle, uh, so we're, we're up there. It's gorgeous up there, uh, beautiful for, for some of the time, and very gray for some of the other time. Um, and Josh, thank you for, for mentioning. I, I, I loved my time here. My wife and I loved our time here at Placerita, uh, serving here with the student ministries. Uh, we actually brought, it's funny you're announcing D-Now. Adam and I brought D-Now from Texas. That didn't happen until we came and we started it. And it's awesome that it's still going. So it's a, a phenomenal, phenomenal time uh, with the students. Um, and Adam and I are actually, we, we go way back. That's just something people say. But we go, we, Adam and I served together in Texas at Lakeside Bible Church. Um, I, I worked there as the office uh, manager and conference coordinator, and then also served as Adam's youth ministry intern. Um, and at the time, Adam was working on his doctorate, and so he brought me into his office and sat me down, and he said, Tim, I would like to show up to youth group and preach, and I don't want to do anything else. And I was like, okay, I can do that. And so I, I got to really cut my teeth in youth ministry with Adam and learn from him uh, and grow in that way. Uh, I was told to tell a funny story, and the only one that I can think of makes me look bad. Um, so I'm going to tell it anyway. We were going to Regen. We had chartered a bus from Texas, from Houston, to Glorieta, New Mexico. We had the whole week there, great time. On the way back, it's late at night, um, and it's, you know, half the students are asleep. We're probably, what is it, like 45 minutes away from the church, something like that. We're like almost there. We make a stop at Bucky's. Anybody know Bucky's? So we stop at Bucky's, and these kids that have been, you know, clenching tight to their spending money this whole time are like, this is it. This is my last opportunity. And so they go in, and they just buy everything they possibly can. One kid comes out, and he's got like two bags of candy and chips. He's got like a 72-ounce Slurpee, and he proceeds to eat like all of it. Um, and so then, about 15 minutes away from the church, he gets up rather abruptly and runs to the back of the charter bus, because it was one of the ones with the bathroom in there, um, and he goes to open the door because he realizes, I'm about to throw up. And the problem was, there were so many people sleeping that there were kids sleeping on the floor in front of the door. And so he couldn't open it, and then just threw up all over the back of the bus, and all of the students that were back there. <laughs> and so we get off, we get to the church, we get off of the bus, and I walk out, and Adam's like, well, intern, this is your time to shine. And I went in, started cleaning up, and realized if I stayed in there, I was going to make it worse rather than making it better, if you know what I'm saying. And so I got off, and Adam, he was a PA, like he can handle it. And so he went in and cleaned up after me. So thankful for, for Adam and uh, the ministry that, that we had got to do together for so many years. Um, it's a joy to, turn, uh, to return here and to, to see so many familiar faces. It's a particular joy to be able to open up God's word. It's a, a blessing to be able to preach God's word. So um, if, uh, if you're looking up up here, I have to push the button. There we go. This is actually, this is a picture of Adam hanging there. 
It's not really, but I think he could do it. He's, he's pretty ripped. I think he could make it happen. Very strong guy. Um, I'm not sure how many of you have been rock climbing before. Um, I enjoy rock climbing. Mostly you do it inside. We have an indoor rock climbing place near our church, so we take the youth group over there uh, quite a bit. It's, it's a lot of fun. I've, I've gone actual rock climbing a few times, um, and that's also really fun, but you kind of see uh, the, the danger of rock climbing when you're out like actually on the side of a cliff, you know, when you're inside and it's like the floor is padded and you know that this auto belay thing has been checked like a million times in the last month, uh, it's not too scary. Uh, but when you're actually on the side of a mountain, it's use some gear and some clips and a harness, um, you, you want to know what you're doing. So I, I learned that there's a variety of, of tools that you need to climb. There's the basics. You have the climbing shoes and the rope and the helmet and the harness, some carabiner clips. Uh, but then you have some more of the strategic tools. You have uh, the belay devices and the repelling devices. Um, and the one, I, one of the ones I think are the, the coolest, even though they're, they're really simple, are, are the climbing hexes. They look like this. Um, so it's just like a simple little, little thing, but really, really creative tool and really helpful tool. So it's just a hexagonal piece of metal with a loop in it that you tie your rope into. And so the, the small hexagon can be strategically placed into a wedge in a rock, and you put it there in, in this crevice at a, a specific anchor point uh, to hold tightly. And you've got to place them really intentionally, though. You don't want it slipping out. You need it to hold strong enough to carry your weight so that if you do slip and fall, it's going to hold you there in place. You improperly set a hex could lead to serious injury or even death if you take a fall. So climbers have to be really deliberate in how they place their hexes. It, could be literally the difference between life and death. And likewise, in the community of believers that we call the church, we have to react, interact rather, with one another in a very deliberate way. We have to be very intentional. We cannot be careless. We cannot be flippant. It's like the placement of a hex. We need to deliberately place words as anchor points into the word of God in our relationships. And this is what... We need, and I'm calling deliberate discipleship. We're climbing through life, one rock at a time, with potential pitfalls and temptations and dangers all around us. Each and every believer in your life is a useful tool of discipleship, working together so that we make this climb safely. And you may be asking yourself, Tim, did you just call us all tools? And the answer is yes, yes, I did. That happened. We need one another. We need one another to be deliberate in our discipleship of one another. Discipleship is just providing advice. It's providing counsel to one another through life. And we do this all the time. You've heard that, that everyone is a counselor. It's just a matter of whether you are a good counselor or a bad counselor. And we're going to, to learn this from Titus chapter 2. So please open there if you haven't already to t Titus chapter 2. And we'll see what deliberate discipleship looks like? How do we go about providing good advice, good counsel, good discipleship to those around us? And Paul answers that question here. Uh, this letter is one of three 
pastoral epistles in the New Testament, the others being First and Second Timothy. They're called pastoral epistles because Paul is writing them to these pastors uh, and provides fantastic advice on not only how pastors ought to operate, but also how the church is to operate. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.15, in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This is how you should conduct yourself as a pastor, and this is how the members of God's church ought to conduct themselves as well. Titus pastored on the island of Crete, Uh, It's evident that Paul and Titus must have ministered together there for some time. He notes at the beginning of the letter, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. That's, That's not the verse. There, nope, that's not it either. Yes, it is. No, it's not. There it is. We've got this. It's just a button. I just need to learn to use it right. So he left him in Crete so that he would appoint elders and get everything in order. So there's apparently several churches uh, that had sprung up on the island of Crete. This could have been the result of the gospel being heard uh, by many groups of people in their own language in Acts chapter 2. The Cretans are listed there among others in verse 11 as those who were present on that day. Other churches may have started during Paul and Titus's ministry there, and certainly he would have gone to those various churches to encourage and strengthen them and teach them. And so now Paul is writing to Titus to set in order what remains. So take a look briefly at what happened leading up to chapter two, just to set the context here. Uh, in verses one, no, there it is again, hold on. Here we go. There it is. I should have just let you guys do it. Oh, I can see it right there. This place is fancy, guys. I'm telling you. This wasn't like this. You used to preach from over there. And All right. Come back to, to the second service. It's going to be a lot different. Have it all figured out. So take a look. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is an opening salutation to start the letter with a greeting to Titus. Verses 5 through 9, he provides the qualifications of those who are to be appointed as elders in the church, what should characterize the lives of those men. Verses 10 through 16 explain why those faithful men need to be put in place. It's because there are faithless false teachers who are leading people astray, and that gets us into chapter two, which we're gonna dive into a little bit more closely. Uh, Look at Titus 2, verse 15, though, as our primary text for this morning. Paul says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, let no one disregard you. Now this is an imperative packed passage directed at Titus and it provides us with a, a great model for deliberate discipleship. In just this one verse we see three criteria for deliberate discipleship. If we're going to be deliberate, if we're going to see that in our discipleship, what, what must be present, and it is these three things. First, it is the message of our discipleship. The message of our discipleship. Uh, this is wrapped up in the phrase, these things, right? Paul says, these things speak. Well, what things, Paul, what are the things that you talk about? 
If you jump back to verse one of chapter two, he says that again. He says, as for you, speak these things. So these operate as as bookends in chapter two uh, and the particulars described there in chapter two are what Titus is to address. This is what is to make up the content of our discipleship. Titus 2.15 says these things and one through 15 gives you these things. What are those specific things? Well, verse two, you have the conduct of older men. Look at verse two, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Then verse three, the conduct of older women. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Verses four and five, young women, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Verses six through eight address the young men. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Conduct of employees in verses nine through 10, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And then 11 through 14 addresses the conduct of all believers. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Now, every believer in the church falls into one or more of these categories. Every one of you in here falls into one or more of these categories. Months could be spent really unpacking each of these verses um, that Paul calls Titus to teach. The message of our discipleship is to be the content of our lives. Our counsel to one another should be for the benefit of one another in these specific areas. These are all character traits and relationships. The kind of person that you are and how you interact with people around you. Family, friends, co-workers, in-laws, believers, unbelievers, church members, elders, ministry leaders, children, teens. All of these things, Paul said in verse one, are fitting for sound doctrine. That's an important statement. These aren't just lifestyle issues. These aren't just relational issues. These are doctrinal issues. These are, were the things that were on attack uh, in the Cretan churches because of the false teachers coming and leading people astray. If you look back in chapter one, verses 10 through 16, Paul says there are many rebellious men empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching the things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. 
one of themselves a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. That's not very nice, Paul. It's like, I called you guys tools, but I didn't call you lazy gluttons and liars. For this reason, Paul says, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. These are doctrinal issues because at a foundational level, if you are living in a way that is out of line with Scripture, it is because you profess the truth with your mouth, but you deny it with your deeds. There were people in the church then that Titus needed to be aware of because their doctrinal error and lifestyle could very easily pull others astray with them. And we face this same, this same problem in our church now, don't we? From all angles, it doesn't matter whether you are watching the news or scrolling through social media or watching YouTube videos or going to the movies or watching TV or any other input that you get, no matter where it's coming from, almost every source of input is seeking to pull you away from sound doctrine and distract you with the things of this world. That kind of erroneous thinking and lifestyle often finds its way into the church. And suddenly... Our conversation is filled with the things of the world rather than the things of Christ. We come in on Sunday morning and we, we talk all about the things that are happening out there in the world rather than the things of the Lord. So we must recognize that truth matters. Sound doctrine must be the driving force behind our discipleship so that our lives aren't slowly influenced by wrong thinking rather than biblical thinking. It's extremely important. We must know the truth in order to speak the truth. Oftentimes, we can't speak sound doctrine because we don't know sound doctrine. You haven't taken the time to learn sound doctrine, so how are you gonna speak that to other people? It is the, the immature believer who is ignorant of the scripture that is going to be carried off by foolish philosophies and worldly ideologies. And Paul was seeing this happening. And so he's warning Titus not to take part in it. In chapter three, verses nine through 11, Paul says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When people start stirring up division and faction with foolish controversies and disputes, they need to be stopped right away. It shouldn't be allowed. No one should entertain that kind of divisiveness or, or capitulate to their arguments. Paul wrote a similar warning in 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4, he said, preach the word, 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. As time goes on, sound doctrine will be rejected more and more. It's just what's going to happen in our world. It will become more and more intolerable in a world that is proclaiming tolerance. We've seen and will continue to see churches that hold to sound doctrine shrink as those who want to hear feel-good messages flock to teachers who are going to just tell them what they want to hear. Paul says, not you, Titus, not you. You don't tell people what they want to hear. You tell the people what they need to hear. When an older man acts in an undignified way, when an older woman gets caught up in malicious gossip, when a young wife struggles with being submissive to her husband, when a young man is lacking sense, which you often do, None of them can be coddled. None of them can be tolerated. None of them can be excused or brushed aside or ignored. Speak what is fitting for sound doctrine into the lives of God's people. And like Titus, the message of our discipleship must be that of sound doctrine. The message of your discipleship, every one of you in here, must be that of sound doctrine. And so you have to ask yourself, how does your discipleship line up with this first criterion? What is is the message of your discipleship? Is discipleship happening in your life? If you want to examine how you're doing here, you can ask yourself about the content of your conversation with the community of believers around you. You can maybe think back to 20 minutes ago when you were standing around talking with, with some others. What was the content of your conversation? What did you bring up that was important? Was it encouragement? Was it conversation that built up? Are the the words of your mouth wholesome, like Ephesians 4.29 says? Wholesome words that edify, that fit the need of the moment and give grace to those who hear. We're complaining people, aren't we? Man, we're quick to complain. Conversely, how are you receiving this kind of instruction when it comes to you. When others come to you with difficult words that hurt your pride a bit, that cut a little bit, are you humble and willing to give them consideration and think, is is that true? Do I need to make correction in my life? Are you longing to be more like Christ or does your pride rear up and you push back? Well, I think you just misunderstood what's going on. This is the content, the the message of our discipleship must be that of sound doctrine for the benefit and growth of the body. Next brings us to the mode of discipleship. How are we to carry this out? How are we to communicate this sound doctrine? What does it look like? And uh, how we do that is seen here in chapter two in the lives of others. Paul uses three imperative verbs here, three commands Uh, He commands Titus to speak, to exhort, and to reprove. So first, he says, speak. Speak, this is 
not a complex Greek word. Sometimes you get up and you really have to pull some of these words apart. This is pretty straightforward, right? You look this up in a lexicon, it means quite plainly to speak. So you just, you know, you're using words to communicate. This is an important command because often Christians will push aside this responsibility to speak and live quiet lives as they seek to be ambassadors for Christ. Rather than speaking truth, when you're put into a difficult situation, you might say something, and you've heard this before, you know, actions speak louder than words. Or, you know what, I'm just gonna preach the gospel with my lifestyle. Like, that's, that's what I'm gonna do. Uh, and I want you to know, like, that's a good thing. You should be living the gospel in your life, and it should be visible in the way that you're living, but if you're never using your words to speak truth to other, you're shirking your responsibility as a believer. You should be living the gospel in your everyday life and interactions, but there are often times when you, you can't speak, you have to demonstrate Christ in your lifestyle, but your actions can't be a substitute for the powerful uh, living, active communication of God's word into the lives of other people. It's God's word that transforms. You may compel someone with your lifestyle, but God uses his word to change hearts and lives. No one ever got saved by watching you be nice, right? You should be nice, but you have to couple that with, with truth, this is especially true when it comes to our discipleship relationships. We must be imparting truth and conviction to one another through God's word. And that requires speaking it. It's a simple word, but it's crucially important. Next, Paul says, exhort. Exhort, this goes beyond just speaking the words. It is a strong appeal or urge. It is an earnest plea for other believers to demonstrate these things, right? You are speaking these things and now you are going to urge them to live out these things. You wanna see these take action in their lifestyle. The NIV renders this word encourage, which uh, is a, a translation of the word, but I, I think it fails to portray the intensity with which Paul is communicating here. Urge them, exhort them, strongly appeal to them. It's not just telling them the truth and, and do with it what you will. It's you, you, have to, you have to live this out. This should impact your life. The whole letter to Titus captures this intensity. Titus 1.9 says, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. This is talking about el the duties of an elder. It is to hold fast to the faithful word so that he can exhort and refute those who contradict. Then again, chapter two, verse six, he uses the same word, but it's translated differently. He says, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. It's that word urge there is exhort. It's the same one, urge them. Guys, be sensible, come on. It's like sometimes you wanna, especially working with teenagers, you wanna grab them by their collar and like, what are you doing? Like, come on, be sensible. <laughs> Paul calls Titus to exhort other believers and when he does so, it is a call to plead with them to not only hear the truth, but to live it out. It's not enough to just explain the truth 
to others and, and leave it at that. We must intentionally urge them to put it into practice. Uh, Calvin says this, he says, men are not sufficiently reminded of their duty unless they are also vehemently urged to do it. Think of it this way, if you were to go rock climbing, like we talked about earlier, first time, the instructor gives you basic rundown of the different tools that you're, you're supposed to use for climbing, how that works, and then he keeps them in the box, and he's like, all right, go ahead. Go for, your, go for a climb. You're like, should I like put on a harness? Should I get the rope? You just told me about all of these things, and you're not going like, to have me, have me use it? That would be foolish. Right? It'd be foolish, first of all, to go and do it, uh, but it, it's foolish of the instructor. It's negligent of the instructor. You want one who's going to take the time and care not only to teach you, but also make sure you're doing it right, encourage you to take those steps safely. How much more, then, should we care for the lives and souls of our brothers and sisters in Christ? How much more should we care We have to be deliberate with our discipleship, speak specifically and practically into their lives and urge them to live it out, exhort them to live in that way. The next word is reprove. You see, it kind of rounds out this mode of discipleship. While exhortation is the the positive side of applying truth, this is how you should live it out. Reproof is the negative side of correcting that which does not align with the truth, right? You, You show them that they are doing something that is out of step. This could also be translated as rebuke or correct. It's recognizing an attitude or action that is not in line with scripture. It's out of line and and calling them to bring it back into line. It's correcting, it is rebuking, reproving. As believers, we're to be in the business of calling out sin. We aren't to ignore it or to let it go. You're familiar with the phrase, we just flew down here and you hear it in the airport, if you see something, say something, right? You see something, say something. Only in, in this circumstance, you don't report to the authorities, right? You don't call up Mark and have him come and, and get the bad guy. You first go and you talk to your fellow believer. You go to them. You see something in, in their life, it's your responsibility to go and say, hey, brother, can, can I talk to you for a second? You explain their sin to them biblically. You call them to, to live biblically. You can see the pattern for this in Matthew chapter 18, Galatians 6.1. You can jot those down and look at those later. Those passages explain going and talking to a person about their sin and the the process of how you go about doing that. Paul didn't just tell Titus this. We we saw this also in 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word, be ready, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. It's the same explanation of discipling people, but he adds with great patience and instruction. Don't expect people to become perfect overnight. This is going to take great patience to see how people grow and change over time. And Paul didn't make up this mode of discipleship. He just takes this from the life of Christ. Look at John 17, 13 to 19. But now I come to you, this is Jesus speaking, and these things I speak in the word so that they may have my joy made complete, made full in themselves. 
I have given them your word and the, word has, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world for their sakes. I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus spoke this truth to them and then sends his people into the world to do the same, to spread the word. Why? So that they may be sanctified in it. So that that continues, this, this growth and sanctification process continues in the lives of God's people. This is so that Christ-likeness may take place. That's discipleship. Sharing the truth for the purpose of helping others grow in discipleship. One commentator explains these activities dominated the life of Jesus, are prominent in Paul's life and letters, and formed the core of the pastoral mandate in the Pauline churches. These must be the characteristics of our discipleship. We must speak, we must exhort, we must reprove when necessary. And you might be thinking, some of you, I know this is in the back of some of your heads, Tim, this is great and everything for you because you're a pastor uh, and these verses are for pastors. Uh, this is, that's who Paul is writing to. So this isn't really something I need to be concerned about, right, so much in my discipleship. This is just for, for you pastors, right? Some of you might be thinking that. Um, I said earlier, this is written to Titus, who's pastor in Crete, but it is for all believers by extension because pastors are to be models and examples for the flock. But also, take that a step further, we also have these same things commanded for all believers in their discipleship elsewhere in scripture. You may be familiar with the one another's. Romans 15, 14 says, instruct one another. That corresponds with Paul telling Titus to speak. That's a command for every one of you in here today. Instruct one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another. That's the same word Titus uses for exhort. You are to exhort one another. Colossians 3.16, admonish one another. This corresponds with reproof, right? You correct the lives of those who are out of step. This mode should characterize all of our discipleship for all of our benefit, for the glory of God. We're to live this way so that we're growing in Christ-likeness and bringing glory to our Lord. The message of our discipleship must be centralized on the word of God. The mode of our discipleship must be that of speaking, exhorting, and reproving. Finally, we see the mood of our discipleship. Whoops. There we go. The mood of our discipleship. We're working together. We were playing, playing a button game with the, the sound booth back there. We got it though. The mood of our discipleship. Uh, and I'm not talking about like moody teenagers. We see a lot of those. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about the, the tone, the tenor that you communicate with, how it comes across. How does this come out? Um, and over the years, I've, I've had some students uh, leave youth ministry disgruntled. It actually, it's happened here it's happened in, in Mount Vernon, Washington. Um, I've had parents pull their kids out saying that they wouldn't be back. That's also happened here and in Mount Vernon. Um, I've had negative comments, to put it lightly, made about 
about working in ministry, I've had them made to my face. Um, I've had more troubling comments made behind my back, like on social media and in, uh, in private conversations. And these things were said specifically concerning uh, preaching and counseling, like how I preach, how I, I counsel uh, with the word of God. One comment made kind of summarizes this concern. I, I met with a student to talk about how his concerns, and he said, when you preach or you explain things, you do it in such a way to make it seem like if anyone disagrees with you, they're disagreeing with God. That's what he said. And at first, that sounds like, it sounds really troubling. Uh, and I have to say, when I get up to preach, uh, when I sit in the counseling room with people, I have very rarely any confidence in myself <laughs> and what's, what's taking place. People often ask before I'm going to preach uh, how, I, how I'm feeling, like, you ready? How are you feeling about getting up to preach? And I usually, I usually respond the same way, like, you know, like, I, I don't know, we'll see what happens is usually what I say. Um, and I, kinda, I kind of want to say, well, I'm involved, so there's like always a great possibility of disaster. So you never know what's going to happen. Uh, but when I'm talking about God's word, um, I'm not communicating my ideas. Um, I'm not communicating my thoughts or my wisdom. Um, I'm, I'm speaking God's word and explaining God's word. Uh, so if I'm accurately speaking God's word and communicating God's word, then to disagree with those words is to disagree with God's word. And so if, if you are speaking God's word, to someone, they may respond to you negatively. They may not appreciate it. Uh, when we communicate these things to God's people, we are to do that in a specific way and with a specific mood about that. And we have God's word explains to us here how we're to accomplish this. Paul tells Titus, how do you do that? How do you declare these things? What is the, the manner in which you're to communicate? Uh, the, this is the mood of discipleship. Listen to what Paul says. He says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It's pretty straightforward. With all authority, and as if that, that wasn't definitive enough, let no one disregard you. When you're speaking God's word, you do that authoritatively. These two phrases set the mood for our discipleship. Authority here is the, the right to command. It is having the ability to speak directly into the life of someone else and, and do these things, to exhort, to reprove, to teach. The word disregard carries the idea of thinking around something. It is the person who you may speak directly to, but they, they think and they, they talk their way around what you're saying. They're, they're trying to get around it. People will hear biblical truth, but they will, they will think themselves out of believing it. Instead, they, they run to foolish controversies or philosophies of the world. The word disregard became used in, in this time in a purely negative sense to talk about uh, someone that was disrespectful and completely ignoring and rejecting what someone else was saying. It was just to write it off. And Paul tells Titus, you don't let this happen. You don't let it happen when you're declaring the word of God. When you're speaking the word of God into the life of someone else, you don't let them ignore it. You don't let them brush it aside. You don't let them try to talk themselves out of it. 
You stand firm on the truth of God's word. You tell them bluntly and boldly and you make sure that they hear. You make sure that you clearly communicate what needs to be heard to them. You're to be confident, courageous, and corrective in the way that you speak to other believers for the glory of God. We were watching football last night and I think of the, like, the guys that are like guarding the quarterback, right? It's like you're trying to talk to someone, speak the truth to someone, they're trying to get around you and you're like, whoa, whoa, hey, hey, where are you going? Whoa, hold on, hold on a second. Like you're not gonna let them get by. You let no one disregard you. You stop and you say, hey, I wanna make sure that you understand what's going on here. MacArthur explains that no believer should be allowed to reject or disregard God's truth. No believer should be allowed to disregard or reject God's truth. When you speak the truth of God's word into the life of a fellow brother and sister in Christ, there's no room for pushing it aside. So we can speak authoritatively and directly with the truth of God's word. Now, I need to make really clear that this does not apply to your personal preferences. All of us have personal preferences, things that we like, things that we would like to see in church, things that we would not like to see in church. And if you don't have book, chapter, and verse to back it up, then you don't speak with this kind of authority about that issue. That's not what we're talking about here, right? And you see that often. Uh, Ministry leaders elders get completely blasted for personal preference issues uh, when they're just seeking to be faithful to the word of God. Uh, Don't make your preference issues on the same level as scripture. That's what heretics do. That's a bad thing. We also need to be clear that being authoritative does not mean being rude or disrespectful. Uh, You see this a lot with some um, uh, apologetics guys who will just argue and demean and yell at people. When you speak the truth, how are you to do it? Ephesians 4. You're to speak the truth in in love. That's right. We're not tearing down. We're We're not pulling people down. The goal is growth. The goal is love. We want to see Christ's likeness advance in these people. So why are we going to tear them down in the process of trying to correct them? That's not the idea. You speak with authority. You let no one disregard you, but you do that with a great demeanor of love and care and concern for that brother, that sister's soul. If you're using God's word in a way that is unloving, then you're, work, you're working in opposition to what God is desiring but when you use God's word for that person's benefit, then you, you can speak with boldness. You can speak with authority, taking God's truth to them. Why is that? Uh, why is it that you can speak with authority using God's word? I want to give you just a couple of things here to think on. Why, why is it that you can use God's word authoritatively? You may be someone that is just like, I just like, I don't really speak authoritatively to, to people, uh, why, why is it that I can do this? Um, first, it's because of the inspiration of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 explains that God's word is inspired by him. It has a divine source. It is not from man. Therefore, when you speak God's word to someone else, God speaks. And God is authoritative. Amen? We can all agree on that. We can also speak this way because of salvation. 
God uses his powerful word to bring about salvation into those with lost, dead hearts. So we should speak it powerfully and courageously, knowing that it may be used by God for salvation. Right? It's Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of, of, of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 10, 14 and 15 it says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good, good news of good things. Right? We, we can speak boldly. We can speak authoritatively because God's word is what brings about salvation. Third, we can also speak boldly because of the indwelling power of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So Christ, having all authority in heaven and on earth, now dwelling within us, with us to the end of the age, has called us to go proclaim his truth so that people are saved and sanctified, right? Make disciples, teaching them then to obey all that I have commanded you, right? We are to call people to salvation and we are to call one another to sanctification. And that is the last reason we speak authoritatively is because of sanctification. This is the reason for which Christ died. Look at Titus 2, verse 14, says Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself as people for his own possession, zealous for good works. This is the immediate context of speaking in this way to one another. Jesus died for this purpose. He died so we can be sanctified. Therefore, it is our responsibility to use God's word to accomplish that for God's glory, for this purpose, so that we are sanctified to exalt him. We must be confident and courageous and corrective with the word of God. Like Paul told Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. He told Titus something similar in Titus 3.8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want, to speak, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds, these things all good and profitable for men, confident for the benefit of others and their growth and godliness. Now, some of you are in here and you know that there's, there is someone maybe in this room, maybe someone that you're close to that you need to have a conversation with, and it might not be a particularly comfortable one. Some of you have, have someone in your life that you know you need to confront and you've been putting it off. You've been putting it aside. You realize that you need to have a frank conversation with them, but you quite frankly just don't want to. It sounds difficult. It sounds awkward. It sounds uncomfortable. But in all seriousness, if you're not going to have that conversation with that person about what's going on in their life with love from God's word, who's gonna do it? If you're seeing it and you're not saying something, there may be no one else in their life that sees what you're seeing. 
you have to go talk to them. Are you going to, to just leave them there in your sin? Would you want someone to do that for you? It's like, ah, just let them keep going. You're gonna let them just continue on knowing that this is harmful for them, harmful for the rest of the body because they're in sin when you have the power in God's word to help them. Men, you must do this for your wives and your children. Marriages often die because men aren't man enough to say what needs to be said. You won't have that, that conversation to confront your wife out of a fear of how she's going to respond. Children often go astray because their fathers never had the hard conversations with them that needed to be had. Ladies, speak the truth to your husbands in love. Speak the truth into the lives of your children. Make your home a beacon of truth where Christ is proclaimed and exalted and don't shy away from the difficult truths. Sit them down and talk to them. Single men, Single women, be the outstanding people who are going to speak truth into the lives of those around you. Be the ones that are going to say the things that no one else is going to say because it's difficult, it's maybe countercultural, but it's biblical. Beloved, this is, this is our job as the body of Christ to disciple one another boldly, faithfully, with the word of God. So are you doing that here at Placerita? Are you? Not, don't look around. It's not the other people in here. It's not the leadership. Are you doing it? Are you being faithful to disciple one another, to build one another up in Christ? Or is the body here suffering because some of you are sitting on the sidelines? You need to be faithful to pursue the glory of God for the growth of the body of Christ. Listen, if you're gonna be a tool, be a useful tool, right? Don't just be a tool that sits on the counter and never gets used. As you see people starting to slip, drive those anchors of God's word into their life so they don't fall. Build them up, help them up, give them a hand, pull them up with you so that then when you slip and fall, they're there to grab you. Be courageous, be confident, be corrective and deliberate in your discipleship for the glory of God, amen? Amen, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise you for the privilege it is uh, to have your word in our hands, to have your sufficient word, all that we need for life and godliness. God, help us to be uh, diligent workers in the body of Christ for the benefit of one another, for the growth of the church, and ultimately for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.